Well, hey everyone, good morning. It's really good to see you. Uh, it's uh, a kind of a real joy and privilege to have the opportunity to uh, be here at Christ the King and to open God's Word together. A quick uh, bio on me, my wife, Natalie. We've been married 14 years. We, along with our four kids, uh, moved to Austin um, to partner with All Saints Presbyterian Church uh, in planting a, a new church in the northwest part of our city. And uh, Lord willing, we will gather for public worship sometime next spring. Uh, and I'd appreciate your prayers for that as we gather a core group and begin to cast a vision and mission for a new church here in Austin. Uh, but prior to serving as a pastor at All Saints, uh, we were in Greenville, South Carolina, where I was a pastor at Downtown Presbyterian Church there for a number of years. But I've been praying for our time together this morning that the Lord really would allow this passage that we're going to look at uh, to leap off the page uh, for us and for it to land in our hearts and produce praise on our lips to God for the gospel. And that is the aim, the goal of this message this morning. We're going to be in the New Testament letter of Jude today. So if you have a Bible, let me invite you to go ahead and turn there with me. Uh, we're going to be looking at the last two verses of Jude this morning. But before we jump in, I want to begin with a quote from a book uh, I read a while back. And it goes like this. Here's the quote. Uh, so many people on the road are looking for their fathers. So many people on the road are looking for their fathers. James K.A. Smith, professor of philosophy at Calvin, a name that some of you may be familiar with, wrote that line in one of his more recent books, On the Road with St. Augustine. Now, uh, for those a little less familiar uh, with church history, Augustine was an influential Christian writer, thinker, pastor uh, from North Africa who lived in the early 400s. He's probably uh, best known for his book, Confessions. But Smith has a chapter in that book, On the Road, um, uh, entitled Fathers, name of the chapter is Fathers, uh, which if you were to ask me is worth the price of admission, maybe because it hits so close to home for me. But it's in that chapter that Smith says so many people on the road... And by the road, he means people who are searching for something more. Searching for meaning, for significance, their place in the world. Something that makes sense out of their story. That so many people on the road are looking for their fathers. And he goes even a step further and he suggests that this may be, quote, the oldest story the baseline narrative of the human condition. So he's saying there, this may be true for every single one of us, regardless of the kind of father you do have or don't have, that as human beings created in the image of God, we can't stop wanting to be seen, to be known, and to be loved. Right? Let me make that just a little more personal for a moment. I grew up, in a small town in West Virginia. Spent the first 20 years of my life there. Before I say anything else, let me say that I love my parents and I thank God for them. But when I was just two years old, my parents, my dad and mom, neither of whom were Christians at the time, ended up getting a divorce. 
as a result, my mom got custody of my older brother and me. And I just remember as a young kid thinking to myself that it seemed like we were always moving from one apartment to the next. And I never really felt like I belonged anywhere. That things just always felt unstable. Just bouncing from one school to the next, frantically trying to fit in before we had to move to the next place. Then add to that, in the middle of all that family dysfunction was a dad who wasn't around all that much. I thank God that our relationship is much better today. But back in those days, in those early formative years of my life, I don't really remember feeling loved by my father. That I mattered to him, that I brought him real joy and delight and not just disappointment. Which is really what I was craving, right? It's really what I needed. Now maybe you're sitting there thinking to yourself that sure, the details aren't the same for you, but your story is not that different from mine. And maybe it doesn't have anything at all to do with a father. But maybe what does resonate is this deep longing inside of you to be loved by someone who actually sees you for who you really are. You don't have to hide from or pretend to be someone that you're not. And this deep longing inside to be loved by someone who knows you, delights in you, is committed to you, and who will never leave you no matter what. And so when we come to the Bible and we hear almost unbelievable things like, the God of the universe is now our Father through faith in His Son, Jesus. That He actually takes real delight in His children. He's committed to their good. These glorious gospel truths that we've already sung about this morning. That for some of us, if we're being honest, have a hard time believing it, don't we? Really hard time believing it. And a big reason it's so hard is because we're bringing so much baggage with us to church. And we're wondering, yeah, I hear that, but is he going to bail on me when the going gets tough? Or when I disobey and I let him down, will the door slam in my face as he heads down the road or down to the basement in anger and disappointment because that's been my experience? Or, that's a really big order there, or is he the kind of father and the kind of God whose home is always a happy one? And whose children are always safe and secure and captivated by his love for them. And it is that story, friends, that you and I want more than anything to be true. And it's that story that gets us right to the heart of the gospel and right to the heart of our passage this morning. So again, let me invite you, if you haven't already, turn with me to the New Testament letter of Jude. It's the very end of the Bible, just before Revelation. It's only 25 verses long. And we're going to be looking at the last two verses this morning. This is Jude's doxology. It's his hymn of praise to God. And if you were to ask me, I think it's probably the richest in the New Testament. And all I really want to do this morning, over these next several minutes, is simply join Jude as he does here. And just pause. And to praise God for the gospel that gets us to him. That's all we're going to do. Because the one who gets us to God gets the glory. Because here's what's true, and I want us to believe it. 
is that the only reason that you and I can keep ourselves in the love of God is because God is keeping us in His. It's the only reason that we can keep ourselves in the love of God is because God is keeping us in His. And it's precisely because that is true that He is worthy to be praised by His people now in this life and for all eternity. So let's read our text. This is Jude, verses 24 and 25. Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, would you even now write these words on our hearts? Your word spoken to us that we might worship you just as Jude did when he first wrote them. We ask this in and for Jesus' name. Amen. So right out of the gate here, let me ask a question. Who is the you there in verse 24? He says, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. Now to me, that's a important question to answer when we stop to consider what's actually at stake in this verse and what is being promised. And we find the answer to the question at the very beginning of this letter in verse 1, where Jude actually tells us who he's writing to, who he has in mind when he writes this. And he says, I'm writing to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. Now, before we go any further, stop for a second. Just try to feel the wonder of that. The wonder of what he's saying there about you specifically. That if you are a Christian, if you are in Christ and you believe the gospel, how is that even possible? That you're a Christian. Jude says it is because you are called and loved by the Father and you are kept. For his son Jesus. Think about that. You and I are called and kept because of the love that the Father has for us. Which must mean that he is not the kind of father who is frowning at you. But rather one who is smiling. Who sees you as the apple of his eye. And has a beautiful purpose for your life. In a word, you are beloved. Let that sink in. Beloved. And we see that this helps answer not only the who's the you in our passage, but even more importantly, who's the him here? Now to him who is able. So with that as the backdrop, drop back down to verses 24 and 25 and listen to two promises that this God, your father, makes to you, his beloved, that will redound to the praise of his glory. First promise. It says at the beginning of verse 24, He alone can keep you from stumbling. Or you could also read that as, Keep you from falling. Again, if we back up a bit, Jude's already told them earlier in the letter, in verse 3, that they must, to well-known verse, right? You must contend for the faith once delivered. As Christians, you fight for it to insist, why? That the gospel never be twisted into something that it is not. Why? 
Because it would render it absolutely useless at saving anyone. And the reason that Jude is compelled to tell them that is because some had already crept into the church who had a distorted view of the gospel. Who were saying things like, the grace of God given in Jesus gives you a license to sin. You can do whatever you want, right? This is the logic that if grace is free, then living fast and loose is the freedom that it affords. And man, if that's not alive and well in our culture today, Jude, though, is quick to say, don't you dare buy what they are selling. Because that's not good news. That won't save you, but it is a distortion of the gospel. It's a denial and leads to damnation. That people who live like that, who think like that, they aren't praising God's grace. They are perverting it. And so he says in verse 3, contend for the faith. And then in verse 21, he says, to keep yourselves in the love of God. Right? So contend for the faith. Later on in the book, keep yourselves in the love of God. All right then. So what is the connection between that, what he just said, and what he says here in verse 24? Because here's the thing. You and I can't afford to make the mistake in twisting the gospel in the opposite direction. All the way from license to legalism, which is just as deadly and is equally alive and well today, that it's all about what you do rather than what is being done for you. So what he's saying in verse 24, which is the refrain of the gospel over and over again, is that the only reason, guys, that you and I can keep ourselves in the love of God is because God is keeping us in His That because he's our father and we are his beloved, he will not forsake us or let us fall from the faith. Otherwise, he himself would be found unfaithful. His promise to his children, to you and to me, is that he is the one who will keep them from stumbling. Which means, think about this, that in every failure, every failure, that you experience in this life, He is refining you. In every uncertainty, and in every season, He is showing you His sufficiency. In every circumstance, in every sin, He is pointing you to the cross and to the Savior who died there to save you. Guys, this is exactly how God intends to keep us. By keeping our eyes fixed on Him and off of us. I'm convinced that when you and I come to the very end of our lives and we look back at all of it, the highs, the lows, the dangers, toils, snares, and sins that we have walked through, we will be able to say with absolute confidence that not once did I walk this life alone, but He was faithful to keep me from falling. Because He has been holding my hand all the way home. So when we leave this life and we enter into eternity, that we will encounter a father whose face we could not see, but one whose grace and love we could never escape. Christian, in all the stuff of your life, can you see how he is shaping you more into the image of his son so that on that day, you can stand in his presence without fault and full of joy forever. The promise is true. 
Jude says. He's keeping sin from having the final say in your story. He will keep you from falling. That's the first promise. Which leads to the second and why I think Jude pauses here to show why our God is worthy to be praised by his people. That's not only that he is keeping you from something, from stumbling, but he's also keeping you for someone, his son. Did you see it? Look at the end of verse 24. It says, and he will present you blameless before the presence of his glory. With great joy. As you sit there right now, wherever you are, whatever you're doing, try to get that picture in your mind. Being presented blameless before the presence of God's glory. Because it's going to happen. Don't think about anyone or anything else. Think about yourself, your own story, all of your sins, all of your shortcomings and insecurities. But on that day, sanctified, blameless, sinless, with nothing more to hide as you stand face to face with the one you were made for. And you are fully seen, fully known, and fully loved by an infinite God and Father forever. Friends, whether you realize it now or not, I pray that you do. This is what your heart and my heart so desperately long for. Like This is home. This is happiness. And it is God alone who gets us there. Which is why Jude can say that when that day finally comes, it comes with great joy. You see it? Now here's a question. Whose joy is it? Is it your joy? Mine? Or is it God's joy in us. And as I've thought through this, I can't help but think that the answer has to be both. Here's some of the reason why. If you go over to Ephesians chapter 5, well-known passage where Paul is talking about marriage, he uses similar language to what Jude uses here to point us to Christ's relationship with the church. That Jesus there is the bridegroom. Who out of great love for his bride, Paul says, gave up his life for her. Verse 27, Ephesians 5. So that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. That she might be holy and without blemish. Now here's the thing. I've been to a lot of weddings. I'm sure you've been to a lot as well. And I have yet, honestly, to meet a bridegroom who wasn't beaming with joy. As the doors in the back swung open and his beautiful bride, dressed in white, pure, blameless, was presented to him. He's a very happy man. And I have yet to meet a bride who walked down the aisle with indifference, who wasn't smiling from ear to ear while the, stream, while the tears streamed down her face as she's overcome with emotion. As she approaches the man she's waited her whole life to marry. It is this picture on that day that Jude puts before us in order to stir up our hearts to praise the one who by his precious blood has purchased us. That we might be presented to him as his beloved bride, blameless and beaming with joy. 
So let me ask, how could a father who had a son that he loved and was lost but is now found not be glad that he's got him back? Or how could a son who spent so much of his life wandering and wallowing in sin but is welcomed home by a father who went looking for him, who embraced him, who celebrated his homecoming with a party, not be overcome with emotion? Or how could a bridegroom who poured out his life for his bride not rejoice on his wedding day? Or how could a bride not be overcome with joy for the love of a husband who is faithfully committed to her happiness forever? The promise is true, Jude says. He will present us blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. But how is it true? How are either of these incredible promises even possible? And Jude's answer there in verse 25 is crystal clear, isn't it? That all of it, from beginning to end, start to finish, is the accomplishment of the cross. It is through Jesus Christ our Lord. And it's possible these promises are true because of the gospel. So as People who believe the promises. And I pray that you do. And just like Jude, let us pause. And pause often to praise him for the gospel of his grace that will get us to God. Where we will be free of sin and full of joy forever. And to try to help us do that very thing, even this week. Let me offer five suggestions. Five practical ways to help each of us apply this passage. I want to try to do that. By using the acronym PAUSE, P-A-U-S-E, PAUSE. So first, P, make it personal. Make it personal. If you're anything like me and you come to a passage like this, your default is to think that that it's written for and about somebody else. Ever do that? This is just about somebody else, not about me. Don't do that. Instead, put yourself in the passage. Because God who's writing it, is speaking to you. Speaking to you. So stop and ask yourself, do I personally believe that the gospel is true? That this text is true? That Jesus Christ is true? That this really is who and what my Heavenly Father is like? And do I believe that He will keep me from falling? And present me faultless to stand before his presence with full joy forever. Personalize it. That's the first thing. Second, A. Ask God to bridge the gap between your head and your heart. Plead with him to do that. From merely believing these truths intellectually or with indifference. Saying, yeah, I preacher, I suppose, I believe he's worthy to be praised and all that. His promises are true. But there is little to no passion to it totally upending the way that you live in light of who he has promised to be and do for you. So that your heart, time and again, spontaneously overflows in praise. Only God can do that in you. So ask him to do it. This is the second thing. Third thing, you utilize every circumstance, every situation 
every moment as a lens through which you can see God working in your life, doing exactly what he promises to do in this passage. To see that every time you sin and repent and you seek other people's forgiveness, and to every time that you feel encouraged to pray and to ask him for help, to every time that you are confronted with putting confidence in something other than God, to every time your heart longs for home and for a happy father, to know that that is God in that very moment keeping you. So don't waste one ounce of the stuff of your life, including your suffering. But use all of it as a window through which you get to see God's promises playing out for you in a thousand practical, providential ways. This takes us to the fourth thing, S. P-A-U-S. Seek to start each day with the scriptures. From beginning to end, every page of the Bible shows how God, the Father, Son, and Spirit has worked in the world on the pages of history to redeem and to rescue His people and to bring them into the reward of His presence where they will be holy and happy with Him forever. So let me ask, do you see God's Word first and foremost being about how you keep yourself in the love of God? Is that what it's first and foremost about? How you and I keep ourselves in God's love, or is it first and foremost an invitation for you to see how God in Christ is keeping you in His? Because how you and I answer that question makes all the difference. And it's a litmus test on how deep the gospel has gotten into us. So let me encourage you, let me encourage us, seek to start each day in the Scriptures, even if it's just five or ten minutes. There's no rule here. And perhaps what you'll find happening is you'll find yourself getting swept up into the greatest story in the universe and lost in the Father's love for you, which is the only place that you'll be found. A fifth and last, E. End every day where Jude ends this letter. By getting your eyes off of yourself, off of your performance, on how well you did on your P, A, U, and S today, but in with getting your eyes on God and on His promises to perform for you, to set your restless heart on His goodness, His grace, on His glory, which we see most clearly in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ so that at the end of the day when your head hits the pillow as it will tonight and you close your eyes that what you see is a father who is running out to welcome you home and it's on days like that you will end where Jude does with an amen because you will know that all the glory goes to God for the gospel of grace that gets you to him All right, so there they are, five practical ways that I hope will help us apply this passage and lead us to praise both God's presence in our lives as well as his promises for us. Let me end our time together with where we started with another quote from Smith's book, On the Road. I want you to listen as he shares his story and see if it resonates with yours. Here's what he writes. He says, 
My father left us when I was 11. I've not seen or heard him, heard from him since I was 21, the year that I became a father. My stepfather disappeared when I was 33, and I haven't heard a word from him or laid eyes on him since. I don't know where either of them lives, nor do they know a thing about me. As a father, this is unfathomable to me. I can't imagine my children making their way somewhere in this cold, hard world without knowing we are at home for them. I can't imagine my children as a blank space vaguely somewhere. Suffice it to say, neither my father nor my stepfather has come looking for me. But a father did. At the heart of the madness of the gospel is an almost unbelievable mystery that speaks to a deep human hunger only intensified by a generation of broken homes. To be seen and known and loved by a father. Maybe navigating the tragedy and heartbreak of this fallen world is realizing this hunger might not be met by the ones we expect or hope will come looking for us. But then meeting a father who adopts you, who chooses you, who sees you a long way off and comes running and says, I've been waiting for you. And so, to him, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for this gospel. Thank you that you are a father who has come looking for us in your son, Jesus. Father, I pray for each one of us that we would know and experience that we are beloved by our father. I pray that you would apply these truths into our hearts and that it would lead us to praise you, not only today, but for the rest of our lives. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.